Before we get started today, I just want to do a quick shout out to our past, present, and new patrons. Your generosity helps us keep making episodes, and we're so thankful. Since it's been a while, I'd like to give a special shout out to our longtime supporters, Angie Rovac, Lynn Baines, Art Kilmer, and Podcast 13. And thanks and welcome to our newest patrons, Crystal Fitzgerald and Mrs. Harris. If you'd like to join these amazing human beings in supporting the podcast, visit patreon.com slash Victorian Scribblers. If you want to support the podcast and you don't have spare change lying around, we completely understand. We're a grad student and an earlier career researcher. You can do that for us by filling out an audience survey, telling us what you like about the podcast, what you think we could improve. It takes about 20 minutes at most, and it would be really helpful for us. We want to continue improving this and making it as good for you guys as possible. So the link for that is tinyurl.com slash Victorian Scribblers. This is Victorian Scribblers, an informal exploration of the lives and work of lesser-known Victorian writers. I'm Dr. Courtney Floyd, a specialist in 19th century literature and print culture. And I'm Eleanor Dunville, a PhD student in Victorian literature and publishing at Loughborough University in the UK. to episode 17, Marie Corelli. And coincidentally, our first live recording. Yes. Hooray! We're not three and a half thousand miles away. We're, we're in the same time zone, in the same room. We're about three and a half inches away. So what brought... <laughs> no, not quite that close. That be... <laughs> <laughs> what brought about this felicitous turn of events? Um, sorry. <laughs> what was it? The, na- <laughs> the NAVSA Data Caucus. Yes, the NAVSA Data Caucus. Sorry, if we seem a little brain fried, it's because we've just been in two very intense days of thinking about Victorian data with a group of scholars from around the world who are also interested in Victorian data. Um, I'm always really excited when, like, when I explain my job to people, I say that data is fun and people think that I'm being sarcastic, but. I was excited to be around people who also think data is fun. Yeah, yeah. We we got up to some good nerdy fun. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, so we had a good time talking about the podcast to other Victorian scholars. Um, yeah, which you should, by, by the time this airs, you will have received the bonus episode and um, have no, you'll, you'll know all about what we talked about people, talked about with people. Yeah. 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 So Marie Corelli, the topic of conversation this morning. Today's scribbler was one of the first bestsellers by modern standards. She bucked convention, refusing to send her books to journalists for review, and achieving success outside of the circulating library system by staying focused on her audience, the general public, not the upper and upper middle classes. Despite this aim toward the popular, however, her works were regularly on Queen Victoria's to-be-read pile. 
So I wanted to begin with a quote from the Manchester Guardian from 1924, so just after her death, which I think sums her up really nicely. And I've also stolen this quote from Theresa Ransom. <clears throat> so, quote, She never saw shades, but dealt only in black and gold. The date of Marie Calarelli's birth is, we believe, one of the secrets of the Registrar General. So, as the Guardian suggests, and some of you may know, if you know anything about Corelli, she was extremely secretive about her precise date of birth during her lifetime. And she reinvented herself constantly and consistently gave her age as probably at least a decade less than reality. There were no official records of her birth. Um, a, that wasn't necessary at the time. B, she may have not been a legitimate child and therefore they don't record those things. <laughs> um... There's a record from 1855 of a girl named Mary being born. Um, so there's one date of May 1st that gets thrown around. There's another There's another that's 27th of April. There's a name Isabella Mary Mills. We don't know. We know nothing about which, yeah. 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 There are just these two competing sort of narratives and actually more competing narratives to come. Yeah. Um but so either May 1st or April 27th, maybe, um, which actually that's not that not much of a range now that I think of it. No. So we've maybe narrowed it down to the week in which she was born. <laughs> yeah, I, I don't know why I, I forget that April and May are right next to each other. Is it, oh, is it spring or summer? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so we don't know whether she was actually born on April 27th or May 1st, 1855. She's, regardless of which one of those is correct, she's a Taurus. So, in the interest of our astrological signs. Yes. <laughs> Do with that information what you will. So, a lot of the information in this episode comes from our old friend Teresa Ransom. Um, she's written a biography of Corelli, and you might remember that we referenced her in the episodes on Francis Milton Trollope, because she also wrote a biography on Francis Milton Trollope because um, we were just talking about the biographies and how yeah it's tough to to read the ransoms is the closest to a balanced biography mm-hmm. if you do some digging what you'll quickly find is there have been a handful of biographies over the years one actually not not that long after her death maybe like during her lifetime two actually um, and so what you get from biographies tends to be from biographies of Marie Corelli tends to be one of two things: either um, sort of sneering misogyny and and uh, sneering misogyny and um, patronizing kind of oh look at this popular writer pat pat she's not a literary writer, um, or you get people who think that she was basically. Um, God's gift to writers slash the cat's meow. I don't know. So like, and there's no sort of room for critique or like uh, in between. And and Ransom has done the best job of that as sort of the consensus. Yeah. Um, And partly this is because as we'll be exploring, um, Marie Corelli threw up a lot of smoke and mirrors around her personal life. And, um, so it's really hard to say fact from fiction often when you're talking about yeah who she was. And I think one note on that point is around her name, because she goes by so many. We've just talked about her birth and her birth. Maybe she's called Mary. Maybe she's called Isabella Mary. We don't know. Yeah. Um, 
I think what we're going to do is refer to her as Marie Corelli. Mm-hmm. The most... The name that she chose to publish under and the name that she's most commonly known as. Yes. So some sources might refer to her as Mary or Minnie, mm-hmm. but we're going to go with Marie. Yes. It's the name she lived under for most of her life. And, yeah. Um, it just makes sense to honor her wishes in that way. Yeah. Um, we normally tell you who her parents were. There's some debate about that, but um, it's mm-hmm. generally, generally believed that Charles McKay was her father. Um, and her mother was a woman named Mary Elizabeth Mills. Did you already say this? Did I just like... No, I didn't say it. Like, I danced around it, but I didn't actually say it. Yeah. Um, before we get too deep into the weeds here, though, let's take a quick trip around the world in Marie Corelli's lifetime. So on February 8th, 1855, the Devil's Footprints hoof-like marks mysteriously appear for over 60 kilometres after a snowfall in southern Devon, England. On July 1st, 1858, the joint reading of Charles Darwin and Alfred Russell Wallace's papers on evolution to the Linnaean Society occurred. On August 5th, 1864, the spectrum of a comet observed for the first time by Giovanni Donati. On January 20th, 1869, Elizabeth Cady Stanton became the first woman to testify before US Congress. On May 10th, 1872, Victoria Woodhull becomes the first woman nominated for US presidency by the Equal Rights Party at Apollo Hall in New York City. On March 7th, 1876, Alexander Graham Bell receives a patent for the telephone in the United States. On February 16th, 1883, the Ladies' Home Journal begins publishing. On May 2nd, 1885, Good Housekeeping magazine is first published. On July 1st, 1889, Frederick Douglass is named Minister to Haiti. On February 1st, 1893, Thomas Edison completes the world's first movie studio at West Orange, New Jersey. The next day, they premiered their first movie, which was a close-up of a sneeze. Oh, we all want to watch that. Yeah. That sounds... So exciting. Delightful. Um, On April 5th, 1895, Oscar Wilde loses a libel case against the Marquess of Queensbury. Um, who had accused him of homosexual practices. And we got a link to an article in the show notes from Branch that's about that. Yes. On March 14th of 1900, Dutch botanist Hugo de Vrij rediscovered Mendel's laws of genetics. And this story is covered uh, really well in The Gene, An Intimate History by Siddhartha Mukherjee, uh, which I really enjoyed and encourage you to read. On March 24th, 1906, the census of the British Empire shows that Great Britain rules one-fifth of the world. On August 21st of 1911, the Mona Lisa is stolen from the Louvre by Vincenzo Perugia. I hope I pronounced that right. It was recovered in 1913. On April 3rd, 1917, Alfred Stieglitz opens the first one-person show of Georgia O'Keeffe's work at an art gallery in New York. On June 15, 1924, the Ford Motor Company manufactured its 10 millionth automobile. So keep listening to find out why this is a brilliant and hilarious illusion. So back to Corelli's biography, or what we know of her. Um, So Corelli was raised by Charles McKay, as we mentioned. Probably her father will go into what relation he bore to her, or what relation she said that he bore to her later. 
Um, but she's raised by Charles McKay and his second wife, Elizabeth, or Ellen. She's another person like Jane who likes to change names and mm-hmm. confuse us. Um, and he'd married Ellen when Murray was six. This is in part con- the cause of the confusion around her actual date of birth. So basically people think that Charles and Ellen were her parents. Um, but because they weren't married at the time of her birth, they don't record it because that's shameful. Yeah, um, yeah. so they invented an elaborate tale instead. <laughs> and apparently his first wife, they'd kind of been separated before her death because she'd found out about his affair with Ellen. Um, but Corelli is quite adamant that Ellen isn't her mother. And she has a lot of stories about who her mother was and that mm-hmm. she's a an Italian or Scotswoman. Um, and there's another story about there's an alternative Marie origin story where it's said that she's just kind of left on McKay's doorstep in a basket um, <laughs> with ten pounds. Yeah. The other the other story that I heard was that um, uh, Ellen slash Elizabeth had adopted her before she married McKay. Um, so yeah, mm. there are lots of different sort of origin stories that I think possibly uh, Corelli herself encouraged just to keep everyone away from whatever the truth was. And part of me sort of wonders if she knew the truth herself or if her parents just kind of told her an elaborate string of lies too so she would never know she was illegitimate. Um, But I don't, I think that just, I don't think that gives Corelli enough credit. I think she was very, she was very smart. yeah, there's yeah. a suggestion that later on she kind of learns the secret of her own birth. Yeah. Um, but I also think it fits with her writing that she's creating this aura of mystery. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Who am I? No one knows. <laughs> so Charles McKay. Who is Charles McKay? <laughs> he was a poet and journalist, but he also wrote several popular songs. And he <laughs> wrote a song called... To the West, to the West, which I personally can't think about without singing it to the tune of Beyonce's Irreplaceable. To the West, to the West. I I don't know. (laughs) To the West, to the West. Everything you own in a box to the West. See, you do it better than I do. (laughs) Yeah. Um, But I can't sing on key, so... (laughs) But yeah, that's... That might end up being a blooper, but that's how I (laughs) think about it. So in at least one letter, Marie says that McKay had adopted her after his own child um, had died in Italy. So presumably, if we believe that, that's the child, Mary, that was born um, either 27th of April or 1st of May. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's interesting, just on the heels of the Mary Shelley episode, the whole died in Italy trope. Like, yeah. how common was that, that it was just like a thing that people could be like, oh, yeah. That's totally believable. I well, <laughs> You used to have a child. What happened? Oh, it died in Italy and then I acquired another one. <laughs> if only the recorder could record the sound of our facial expressions. <laughs> yeah, so as he was a journalist, um, McKay actually spent some time writing for the New York Times about the Civil War. So this is around 1862, so it's Civil War period. And Marie goes with him to live in the US from the age of six to eight, but then later denies ever having been to the US um, and doesn't mention her time in America, London or Paris in her later writing. Mm -hmm. So 
sort of back to um, McKay's uh, war journalism, um, he that's a really actually a common thing, at least from the American, the U.S. perspective, was that um, even if British, the British didn't really tend to agree with the slavery part, they did sort of feel more connected to the society in the South. Um, often, not I mean, like that's speaking about a whole a whole society like they're a monolith, right? But that sort of tended to be the feeling over here was that, um, like in the South, sort of more uh, leisurely and more like class uh-huh. conscious ways of life had been maintained, and so that seemed like that the sentiment was like if the UK were siding with anyone, it would be the South, even if they didn't agree about the whole slavery thing. So I don't know that McKay stood out all that much and that sort of feeling is what I'm... And I'm sure this is, like, this is something that we've talked about a lot and we will talk about more in this episode and was discussed at the conference that we were just at, but there's this tendency to see a Victorian writer or figure giving a certain point of view and reading it through our lens of oh, he was pro-succession, so therefore he was a bad dude. Yeah. Whereas it seems like it was a lot more nuanced and it was a lot more, well, if this country is built on freedom of thought, then I'm not pro-slavery. But but it seems like for the New York context that he was in, his, his views were way too pro-succession. And... Yeah, so things got too hot for him in New York and they headed back across the Atlantic. So... It's around this time in London that she meets somebody who's going to be part of her life for the rest of her life, and that is Bertha van der Weyer. Well, to give her her full name, Bertha Amelia Adriana Francisca van der Weyer. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. A mouthful. (laughs) Um, We'll just call her Bertha from now on. Yes. Um, The Corelli household, I'm just going to give them Corelli's chosen name, yeah. apparently, <laughs> had a had a, a number of uh, interesting neighbors, one of whom was George Meredith, which we'll touch on probably a little bit more later, but um, the Vandervivers lived near the McKays in London, um, and Bertha's mom was a countess, and um, Bertha was just a little bit older, like about a year older than Corelli. She was born on the 11th of June, 1854, and had two sisters. Um, it was a only female household because um, Countess Vanderviver had left her husband. They're probably just separated at this point in time, yeah, right? Cause, I yeah. imagine so. Um, yeah. I really tried to find her mother's name, and I just... I mean, I found, like six different names for Bertha. Like, <laughs> right. <laughs> all of her legal names. But for her mom, it's just Countess van der Weyver. But I think that um, the Countess really was... She kind of befriended Marie. Mm-hmm. And um, they had a very sort of... She was a mother figure in Marie's life. Yeah. For sure. I think she wrote to... Marie wrote to the Countess... Probably more than she wrote to her own mother. Am I making that up? I think no. I, I think that. there's yeah. there's like one letter that people have found between Marie and her own, or Ellen if Ellen is her mother. Yeah. And then yeah, there's a number to the countess. So. Yeah, yeah. So. 
maybe just all of the other letters have been destroyed because they're too <laughs> yeah i mean the secrets it's hard to say but she is a person and we'll maybe come onto this later but she is a person like dickens who destroys a lot of her letters yeah so it could be yeah especially with all the questions around her parentage that she just destroyed all of the others yeah who knows definitely what we do know is that in from 1866 to 1870, so when she's kind of 11 to 14, kind of age, maybe 15, she's educated at a convent in Paris, which is, she's living at the convent when she writes that one letter to her mother that we still have, um, but then she also spent all of her summers in Scotland with McKay, and one particular
Although, like, she might be, yeah, she might be in a contest (laughs) with Charlotte Bronte for that spot, but, um. Yeah, it's the kind of physicality of people that you never think about. Like, I, when Courtney picked me up from the train station, I suddenly had this thought right before I got off the train of, I don't know how tall she is. Yeah. (laughs) We're actually pretty much, we're, like, really close in height, which was surprising. It's really hard to tell when you've only seen somebody in, like, a Skype window or something, you know, or on pictures on Instagram. Yeah. So for wondering listeners, we're both pretty tall. Yeah. We would both tower over Marie Corelli. Yes. And we would feel so clumsy in comparison. Yes. <laughs> um, when she was in school, Corelli started writing um, and sort of being involved with the arts. So before she ever became sort of a writer with a capital W, at least in her own mind, she was a musician, really. But as many school children do, she was involved with... Um, school plays or dramas Um, and at one point during her childhood she sort of like is responsible for one of these and writes to McKay that she Mm -hmm. needs a plot Um, as I imagine anyone would who had a writer for a parent (laughs) like supply me with a plot please and he sort of jokingly um, asks how much she's going to pay him for it (laughs) and then she just kind of like coaxes him to send a whole plot for a drama for her school fellows and her to play, which I thought was really endearing. I really like how, yeah, so I think she's 15 at this point and she says she doesn't want any critics or great geniuses in attendance. Yes. It's such yeah. a mood, it's like, she. you can come and see, but I don't want anyone who's gonna... <laughs> yeah, I took a picture of that, and I was trying to see if I can find it on short notice, which is always the trick. Yes, we had a very exciting afternoon yesterday. The University of Virginia has um, a special collection which contains some works by Corelli and writings about her, which we were very nerdily excited to go and see. Yes, and one of which was the memoirs that one of her friends wrote. One of her friends. (laughs) A gal pal. Make note of the odd emphasis on that word, wrote, um, after her death. So, I'm not going to be able to find it. Oh, well. So, in 1875, when Corelli is about 20... Am I doing that math right? Yeah, that's... Yeah. Yeah. Um, her, her mother, or stepmother, or adoptive mother, um, Ellen becomes seriously ill with an intestinal disease and is no longer, according to the biographies, able to care for McKay and Corelli. That's such a weird way to put it because, like, one, Corelli is 20 years old. Yeah. And and two, McKay is a grown man. Yeah. Super chill, but her purpose in life is to care for them. So they, yeah, they lose their housekeeper. Yeah. I would expect that to be phrased as, you know... Um, McKay and Corelli have to care for Ellen, not right. Ellen can no longer care for McKay and Corelli. Know, it's so strange. But Countess um, is Van der Viver, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, Countess Van... Because I never know whether to say Van der Viver or just Viver. Yeah. Uh, Countess Van der Viver um, swoops in and suggests that um, Bertha should go and live with the McKays, so at least Murray won't be all alone. Yes. Insert fateful music here. Mm. Not long after, on the 2nd of February in 1876, Ellen slash 
Elizabeth dies. Um, so, question mark mom. This woman who may or may away. not be. Yeah. Um, and Bertha and Marie are suddenly the women of the house. Well, technically it's Marie, but I think... Bertha helps. Bertha, Bertha helps. Um, Bertha might be more practically minded than Marie. Yeah. It seems like it. Yeah. Yeah. Bertha is the, um, the Charlie to the max of this situation. <laughs> <laughs> so we keep comparing um, these characters to Courtney's dogs who are adorable <laughs> and wonderful. Um, I have a very responsible three-year-old dog named Charlie, as we've mentioned before, and then a puppy named Max, who is just carefree and, yeah, that sounds like He has no inhibitions, he just does what he wants. He does, yeah. It's great. It's great when you're a visitor. (laughs) Yeah, it's great as a visitor, I'm sure. It's not so great when he sneaks up behind you and barks as loud as he can (laughs) in your ear. (laughs) It's quite funny, though. Um, anyway. So, now enters the person that I regard, at least, as the villain of the piece, Eric. He is Marie's half-brother, if you believe that Marie is McKay's daughter. Mm-hmm. He's a consummate ne'er-do-well whose only real talent seems to be squandering money. And he comes to stay at Ferndale with Marie and Bertha and McKay. If you've ever read Wilkie Collins' No Name, the character that the protagonist, Magdalene, falls in love with is basically like Eric Incarnate. I think his name is Frank or something. I don't know. I was so mad at him that I've like blocked his name from my <laughs> yeah, memory as a character. Name. Yeah, similar levels of ne'er do well. Like he gets, uh, everyone is always like giving him everything he needs to be a success in life. Yeah, and, and Mar- he squanders it, and yeah, yeah, yeah. Like in the case of Eric, like Marie is always trying to support him. Um, like at one point he. So Eric has been trying to become a writer like his poet father. Um, but on a whim, he decides that he's going to give up literature and become a violinist. Because you can do that, really, on a whim. Like This is a super easy instrument to learn, and yeah. it's not annoying for those around you while you try and learn it. <laughs> um, and Marie, at this point, is kind of... It seems like she thought he was too old to start. and she, But regardless, she buys her older brother... A used violin and pays for his lessons. Um, I don't know how he swung that or what this guy's right, but she does that. Um, and he never really gets past the beginner's phase. He can play Twinkle Twinkle Little Star, basically. Potentially, that might be giving him too much like, credit. Badly, not like yeah, yeah, like yeah. So he never gets past that. <laughs> yeah, and like I said, he's been trying literature before that, and I just feel like it really sucks for Marie because she's been. I mean, we're jumping ahead a little bit here, but she's been trying so hard to get published. Yeah. Um, And she's not necessarily going about it in the right way, which we'll talk about mm-hmm. more. But she's really putting in the hours and the effort, and she's yeah. not getting anywhere. And then Eric, like, swans through life, failing upwards. You know, it's probably a combination of being male and, um, air quotes, legitimate, mm-hmm. that is really helping him out with that. But yeah. Yeah, it just sucks so hard for her. She's, But as you mentioned, I think there's another way in which this is just really sort of like a slap in the face, which is that for, for most of this time, Marie has been building herself a career as a pianist. 
Yeah. Um, that's what she, that's what her plan is because in the background, as with so many writer fathers, McKay is having a harder and harder time paying the bills, um, and mm-hmm. and Corelli just kind of recognizes that she can't really rely. She can't just wait around and hope that things are better, right? So she has a plan, and her plan is that she's going to um, play piano in for, like, upper classes, like, in-home concerts. Yeah, so her main, like, her main career plan is to write, but she decides that if she can't get published, what she's going to do is play piano for private parties at home. But what she's going to do is she's not going to play sheet music, she actually has, she improvises, so she has poems that she wants to kind of respond to and she's going to make it up on the spot. Um, I just kind of, when I was reading about that, it struck me as maybe she thinks, if anyone's read Daniel Deronda, it seems like maybe she thinks she's going to be like Myra Lapidoth, who's the character who is a wonderful singer and ends up giving private performances. Um, but she's probably more like Gwendolyn who is who aspires to be a great singer but just doesn't have the talent or ability right. I don't know it seems yeah. like she she was successful when she did these improvisations but then it's such a tough thing that she's trying to set herself up for where she's gonna every night come up with a new um composition on the fly absolutely yeah so we have um in the special collections uh yesterday we got to see um the memoir that I mentioned earlier, and in it, there's a sort of printing of one of the, f- one of the advertisements that she sent around to the people who had been invited, or the program. That's what I should say, the program. And it's it reads, Senior Signorina Marie Corelli's piano forte improvisation, Thursday evening, December fourth, eighteen forty four, commencing at eight thirty, carriages at ten fifteen. Program of subjects. Note. As Signorina Corelli will compose all the following pieces while seated at the pianoforte, it is earnestly requested that perfect silence may be observed while she is playing. And then it describes, like, five sequences that she wants to do. A forest symphony, a romance of Henry II, and then there's going to be an interval of ten minutes, and then two studies from Shakespeare, an impromptu on Swinburne's two poems, which are Madonna Mia and Let Us Go Hence My Songs, and pictures from Italy. So it's this night of improvisational piano, which is amazing. Yeah, and it, it, it seems like she gave a few of these, both singing and playing the piano, but for one thing, which is exactly what happens with Gwendolyn, is she doesn't have the vocal power to be a professional singer. Right. And you've got to remember, like, we don't have, like, PA systems like mm-hmm. now, so it's all projection. And from the diaphragm. And a Victorian house is, like, not acoustically Yeah, it's not designed for... Yeah, yeah. um, But also it seems like performing in front of an audience every night is really stressful for her. Yeah. Um, And I actually wanted to read a little bit from her first novel, A Romance of Two Worlds, because, in fact, the protagonist of this novel is really um, basically having a nervous breakdown from performing piano in this way. Mm Mm-hmm. So, chapter one begins. In the winter of 188-, I was afflicted by a series of nervous ailments, brought on by overwork and overworry. Chief among these was a protracted and terrible insomnia, 
accompanied by the utmost depression of spirits and anxiety of mind. I became filled with the gloomiest anticipations of evil, and my system was strung up by slow degrees to such a high tension of physical and mental excitement that the quietest and most soothing of friendly voices had no other effect upon me than to jar and irritate. Work was impossible. Music, my one passion, intolerable. Books became wearisome to my sight, and even a short walk in the open air brought with it such lassitude and exhaustion that I soon grew to dislike the very thought of moving out of doors. Now, I hate, I, I'm, I'm reluctant to sort of attribute biographical um, motives to fiction or to use fiction to sort of explore somebody's biography. So I, I, but I do think in this particular case, if nothing else, that, that sort of, that passage tells us that Corelli knew what it was like to be overworked, depressed, and anxious. Yeah. She had intimate experience with that. Um, yeah. Yeah, because this whole time, I mean, th- nothing, nothing particularly comes easy for her. So in June 1883, um, so she's what, like, 28? Yeah, 28. Yeah. Um, So McKay has a stroke and the family is advised to... They've been living at Ferndale, so near Box Hill. Um, At this time, they're advised to move to London for his care. So they move to Kensington. Um, But by December of this year, McKay's just really desperate for money. Um, And how he decides to make his money is to write a book on obscure and in misinterpreted words from Shakespeare to Blackwood where he tries to sell that book to Blackwood um, and Marie is quite justified in my opinion of resenting this that he's trying to publish this stuff and not something that might appeal to a large audience mm-hmm. it seems I mean we were talking about you know kind of keys to all mythologies recently and this seems like the key to all Shakespearean mythologies. Yeah, yeah, like he's doubling down. <laughs> he's not being practical at all. It's the kind of thing where if someone said they were writing a PhD dissertation about misinterpreted words in Shakespeare, you'd say that's too much. Yeah, yeah. Don't, don't don't do it, buddy. Don't do it. Um, but yeah, like you said, she's she's not got an easy job of it in these years, and I think I don't know. In a lot of ways, <clears throat> Marie Corelli is the first scribbler we've covered who I think really feels like she has sort of modern experience that you would think. Like, she feels mm. like a millennial, almost like she's yeah. got the side hustles going. She's burning the candle at both ends um, in a way. like, And she is writing so much later than everyone else that we've talked about that she is ex- she has a vastly different experience of the world than yeah. um, a lot of the other authors we've covered. Yeah, Because a lot of the other authors are either, you know, dead by this point or they're coming to the end of their career, whereas right. where she's just starting out and the literary context is changing or has changed so drastically. Yes. Um, but she's always she's also always trying to help or advise both Charles and Eric. So in 1885, she tries to flog Eric's poems to Blackwood. Um, and she explicitly says in this letter, she says that Eric is not related to Charles or any McKay that she knows. <laughs> um, maybe wishful thinking on her part. Uh, at the end of the off, and at the end of this letter, she kind of says, "Oh, I could also send my book to you to review." Yeah, yeah. 
So I guess, I mean, we should return to that comment you made earlier about the way that in this in this point in time she's going about trying to get published for herself, too, is a little yeah. bit questionable. Um, before she uh, before she really starts calling herself Marie Corelli, because at this time she's still going by... Well, I guess she is, as a singer, going by Marie Corelli at this point. Yeah. No, but she hasn't really started using it as her writing pen name yet. Um, so she, at first, is just, like, writing letters to people who have published her father's work, being like, hey, I sent you this poem. When are you going to put it? When are you going to print it? When are you going to print it? Yeah. Because um, it's... um. It's Blackwood that she sends a copy of her book to for this, and she's previously been like, "Hey Blackwood, I'm Charles McKay's daughter. Do it, do publish it, do me." It. And I think, and then she'll repeatedly write and say, "I haven't heard yet that you're going to publish me. What's going on?" Yeah, <laughs> stuff like that. Which, not a good plan in the 19th century. Not a good plan in the 21st century. <laughs> yeah, like you just you have to understand the processes, and um, just abide by them. But. Um, Corelli is not really willing to do that. So she's always scheming of new ways to get her foot in the door. Which, to be fair, Victorian publishing was still very much a... uh, uh, It's who you know. Yeah. As much as, and even more than, your writing skill in a lot of cases. Yeah, your success is predicated as much on your ability to leverage those social networks as on your innate talent so in ways you can't fault her for her hustle and her attempts but yeah um so yeah she writes to blackwood trying to sell eric's poems to him um and i don't think she was particularly successful Mm -hmm. eric eventually actually writes a book of poems um and as with the violin marie pays for the publication of this she finds a publisher so she approaches bentley first bentley rejects it um, she finds someone who will actually publish it, and then she also writes an anonymous puff piece in the London Society. So just a quick primer on puffing or puffery. It's basically when someone who is um, economically invested in a book, so generally it would be publishers, and um, it's a Henry Coburn that's particularly associated with this. Mm-hmm. Um, they will insert extremely positive reviews into the periodicals that they also own yes yeah so marie has invested in this book and she's um basically finances it and then also writes a really positive review Mm -hmm. hoping presumably that she's gonna you know get some of that money she invested in back in yeah and if you've ever read the sorrows of satan um which she will publish about 10 years after this uh, this moment is very ironic in the context of that later novel. Um, so we'll probably revisit this a little bit, but... Yeah, Eric, yeah. our favourite person ever, um, ever the ungrateful deadbeat brother, decides that with this book of poem that Marie has paid to publish, what he's going to go ahead and do is give away the pro- the copyright. So in doing that, he forfeits what little profit he's probably going to get from these poems. Apparently they're terrible. And Marie was being extremely generous when she, I mean, yeah, she she gives a positive review in part to make her own money back, but yeah. it doesn't happen because he gives away the copyright. <sighs> Eric. Nemesis of the episode. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, 
But not everything is bleak for Marie Corelli in 1855. So in July of that year, she lands her first paid writing gig, um, which, I mean, basically she has an article published. Is it an article or a story? I think it's an article. I think, yeah, it's an article in Temple Bar. In Temple Bar. Um, Which I think is where Braddon's Aurora Floyd is published. So Temple Bar is one of the ones that um, Maxwell and Braddon set up, Mm -hmm. isn't it? So, yeah, you might have remembered um, Temple Bar being mentioned on the Braddon episode. Yeah, yeah. Um, So on the sort of wings of this minor success, she decides to write her first novel. And she approaches Bentley again, who despite the earlier shenanigans with Eric, (laughs) um, decides that, okay, this pitch sounds like it could sell. Yeah. And um, pays her 40 pounds. Yeah, so she gets, upon signing the contract, she gets 40 pounds. And then once she sells 450 copies, she gets an extra 30. And then another 30 once she sells um, 750 copies. So essentially... Once she's sold enough, she's going to get £100 out of this. Yeah. Um, but the kind of the publication history of this is kind of interesting as well. Because all of the readers at Bentley's had told George Bentley not to, not to buy this. Um, yeah, so the novel is A Romance of Two Worlds, which I actually just read you an excerpt from. And it's really kind of um, classic Corelli even though it's her first work, it sort of sets the tone for her career. It's um, about a professional musician who's suffering from depression, travels abroad, um, by a series of coincidences gets introduced to this sort of faith healer who uses electricity to sort of bring your soul back into alignment Mm -hmm. with its twin soul that lives out in the universe. Um, So it's... um, uh, definitely drawing on a sort of Christian mythology, but brings the very new technology of electricity right into the center of that and makes it sort of this scientific supernatural um, plot. Yeah, and in ways, maybe it's because we just finished talking about Mary Shelley, but in ways that the, the use of electricity is very much like similar but different. Yeah. So it's kind of a life force, but it's, for one thing, it's positive, it's not... Right. But I think this is actually a good predecessor to, um, you know, that trope, especially in comics where you have to die to get superpowers. Yes. You like die and you come back and it's that like near death or kind of like slight death experience that gives you superpowers. Um, It's sort of like that. And that basically like part of the plot is just people getting electrically shocked until like their soul leaves their body. Right. And it gives them this out literal out of body experience that is then like helps them to be um, spiritually full. So yeah, 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 it's an interesting, weird little book. So yeah, all the readers at Bentley's basically say to George Bentley, don't don't publish this, it's nuts. Um, yeah. And he actually takes the fairly unusual approach of, he reads it himself um, and concludes that, yeah, the contents might offend some, but it's really original and he wants to take a chance on it. Yeah. So according to, I guess the kind of, we've been dancing around this a little bit, but Marie's friend Bertha, after after Marie dies, Bertha writes her memoirs. Um, we'll talk more about why 
in a bit. But anyway, so according to that memoir, um, Oscar Wilde was a reader of A Romance of Two Worlds and actually read it multiple times and wrote to her and said, I have read the book over again. You certainly tell of marvelous things in marvelous ways. Um, and this was young Oscar Wilde, so it's kind of at the outset of his career that he's really sort of uh, writing a fan letter to. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. How many people can say that they got fan mail from uh, Oscar Wilde? Yeah. In the same year as A Romance of Two Worlds, Corelli published a second novel, which is called Vendetta. Um, so, I mean, maybe that gives you an indication as to why the anxiety, burnout, and insomnia were a thing. Yeah. Uh, two novels in one year is intense, but... So the thing that really struck me about the opening of Vendetta, um, having just read The Mortal Immortal for our last episode, is the similarities. So I'll just read you the first paragraph of Vendetta. I, who write this, am a dead man. Dead legally. Dead by absolute proofs. Dead and buried. Ask for me in my native city, and they will tell you I was one of the victims of the cholera that ravaged Naples in 1884, and that my mortal remains lie mouldering in the funeral vault of my ancestors. Yet I live. I feel the warm blood coursing through my veins, the blood of thirty summers. The prime of early manhood invigorates me, and makes these eyes of mine keen and bright, these muscles strong as iron, this hand powerful of grip, this well-knit form erect and proud of bearing. Yes, I am alive, they declared to be dead, alive in the fullness of manly force, and even sorrow has left few distinguishing marks upon me, save one. My hair, once ebony black, is white as a wreath of alpine snow, though its clustering curls are as thick as ever. Wow, that is super similar. Right? So this book again is really popular, and this brings us onto the kind of royal patronage that Marie enjoys. So the Prince of Wales asks for copies of the book. Um, yeah. And Marie actually goes to Bentley and says, can we publicise the fact that the Prince of Wales has asked me for a copy of my book, which apparently is gauche. I read that and I was like, it's the Prince of Wales. He can buy his own books. Right. He's rich, um, but he's not the only royal... I've written royal patron here, but I want to say royal freeloader. <laughs> yeah. So, a little, uh, like five years later, Queen Victoria has been lent a copy of A Romance of Two Worlds, and she writes to, I think it's to Benley asking for a presentation copy. And, like, pay for one, Vicky. You've got enough cash. Like, we just heard how much of the world the British had colonized at that point. Like, you can use some of that stolen money to buy some books. Um, I don't know. That's just my point of view as a Republican in the British sense. Um, but actually it is super flattering for Corelli, so we can't be too mad at Victoria and the Prince of Wales for asking for free books. Um, I, I would want to use it for free advertising too. Like, Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Those aren't the only royal personages who were super into Corelli. So in the memoir, there is a letter from um, like a servant or secretary or something of... Um, the Empress of Austria. So the Empress of Austria had had one of her people write to ask for books too. Um, and of course, Corelli obliged because why, course, why wouldn't you? Gonna... Yeah. Um, and so the letter written in acknowledgement reads, Miss Marie Corelli, Brighton, 
Madame, Her Majesty the Empress of Austria thanks you so much for having been so kind as to comply with her wish in sending her through Miss Swan a portrait of yourself. She is indeed very happy to have it, and she will prize it very much. Your books have afforded Her Majesty many hours of happiness and rest. So I guess she sent a portrait, not a book, but um, it goes on. She not only admires your talent and style of writing, but also your poetical imagination with which your works overflow. Her Majesty says that even the Queen of Romania, who is herself a writer, is one of your fervent admirers. Her Majesty sends you her warmest salutations. She has been very sorry to hear that you have been dangerously ill, but she is glad to know that you are convalescent. So this is actually kind of zooming ahead a little bit, written in 1898. But um, yeah, so as her career goes on, more and more royalty yeah. <laughs> become fascinated with her work. Also, I didn't know that the Queen of Romania was a writer. No, I didn't know this either. I also don't know who that is, so we'll we'll look it up and link it in the show notes. But um, Yeah, but these she does have this royal patronage, and she wants to publicize this. But Bentley, despite being a bit forward-thinking earlier and accepting her work, advises against this and basically says it's going to be a little gauche. You don't want it to seem like self-promotion, which I feel like anyone in academia understands. Yeah. You don't necessarily want to sell yourself but regardless the news gets out that Vicky's into this and it's understandably great for her sales yes um I kind of feel like Marie's onto something so the Victorian publishing world or publishers of Victorian fiction would benefit from something like Victoria's book club so like you have Oprah's book club in the US or in the UK we have Richard and Judy's book club um (laughs) it's a really successful marketing campaign and I'm tempted to create a twitter bot would be queen victoria's book club but i'm doing so many things maybe at some point i'll get time to yeah maybe later that would be amazing though um and you know corelli's onto a lot of things in um uh in publishing for one thing she's not writing your standard three volume novels she's like mostly doing one volume um Mm -hmm. which is really kind of radical although and this period is when the one volume novel starts to yeah. pick up steam right it's the beginning of the shift away but yeah. she's still kind of an early adapter yeah yeah um yeah so she's she's gaining traction her career is picking up steam um and i think that's where we'll have to leave you for today yes unfortunately so t- uh, tune back in for part two where we think about and talk about more about her as a publishing sensation, but maybe about her later life and her private life as well. Yeah. yeah unfortunately, I have to go and catch a train to New York. Um, so we'll be back to the remote recordings. Yeah, but... Stay tuned to hear more about how Eric McKay is the worst. And about all of the juicy details of our podcast slash gossip rag. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Um, yep. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening. And thank you to the people who came and talked to us at the Victorian Data Caucus. Yes, it was amazing. Thanks. Bye. (laughs) Goodbye. Hi, listeners. It's Courtney popping back in to remind you to please, please, please take a few minutes to complete our survey at tinyurl.com slash Victorian Scribblers. Now that we're almost both done with graduate school, we're trying to up our game and be more strategic about bringing you the content you love. 
But to do that, we need to hear from you about what's working, what's not working, and what you hope to hear from us next. The survey only takes about 20 minutes, and it helps us out a whole lot. Once again, that's tinyurl.com slash Victorian Scribblers. We'll be running the survey until December 31st, 2019. Victorian Scribblers is researched, written, and produced by me, Courtney Floyd, and my co-host, Eleanor Dumbbell. The podcast is made possible by support from listeners like you. If you liked what you heard today and want to help ensure more fabulous content, please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes, spread the word on social media, and, if you can, visit www.victorianscribblers.com support us to donate. Every dollar helps provide us with things like web hosting, subscriptions to research databases, and recording equipment, which all helps us bring more content to you. Music and sound effects for this podcast are available under Creative Commons Attribution Licenses. Our theme is Joseph Miroslav Weber's String Quartet, number two in B minor, performed by Steve's Bedroom Band. The music for our Around the World feature is Puddington Bear's Bit Rio. Our closing music this season is a 1911 recording of Come Josephine and My Flying Machine, performed by Ada Jones and Billy Murray, and made available by the UCSB Cylinder Audio Archives. <laughs>